All right, good morning. Um, it's good to be back. We took a week break, and some of you guys may have gone away with your families. Um, perhaps some of you guys stay local, but either way, we're excited to resume our study back in Habakkuk. Um, that's how I'm weird. Um, so we will start off with just remembering what has happened so far. Habakkuk was unsure of why God isn't dealing with the sin of his covenant nation Israel, to which God responds much to Habakkuk's dismay, dismay um, and that God is going to send an even more sinful nation, Babylon, to purge the sin in Israel. Habakkuk thinks this is so uncharacteristic of God. Um, and so God is too pure and too holy to look on sin, let alone use it for his purposes. But in the final part of the dialogue, God responds with words of encouragement that support his character. But before he lets Habakkuk in on his plan, he gives um, a clue almost. He says that the people who will survive my judgment will the people who have faith in me. The righteous shall live by faith. So God tells Habakkuk what his plans are with the sinful nation Babylon. He will judge them. And that was our last two lessons, if you remember. It was the five woes, which were split up with the first four and then the last one that Eva taught. And she taught us that the idolatry of Babylon was really the reason for all their wickedness. And God was going to judge them. So their self and wooden idols and lifeless statues won't be able to save them from God's wrath. So Habakkuk's questioning of God's whereabouts and his character has become silenced. And this leads us into the final chapter of the book. The heading in your Bible will show that it's a prayer that Habakkuk is now stewarding toward God as opposed to a complaint. This prayer is divided into three parts and we'll look at part one today. The way that the prayer is written, it seems like it might be sung almost like a psalm. So if you glance down, you will notice three times he uses the phrase Selah. Um, we don't know what that means, but we can assume it's a musical term. As well as at the end of the chapter, he has instructions for the choir master. So though Habakkuk is praying in light of what he has just personally dialogued with God, he's written it so that it can be sung by the people of Israel, and specifically the people of faith. This prayer will give us an example of what faith looks like when trials and even chastisement from God comes. So I'll read it and then I'll pray. Habakkuk 3, verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigenah. O Yahweh, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Yahweh, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth, he looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered, the everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of cushion in affliction, the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for this morning, for this group of ladies who can gather together and to um, dig into your word and to know what you are saying. And Father, I pray that you would use our time now to understand um, this portion of Habakkuk. This book is small, but it's great with, um, just with your glory and with your splendor. And so we pray that you would reveal that to us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll start off in verse 1. Habakkuk breaks his list of complaints in reverent silence with a prayer. 
And like I mentioned earlier, how his prayer is to be sung, he from the get-go declares it to be done according to Shiganoff. So we don't know what this word means, but we cannot assume that it's a musical term. And so in verse 2, it's only fitting that we see Habakkuk standing in fear. Habakkuk will most likely see the Babylonians come into the land on horses swifter than leopards and more fierce than wolves. He will see the Israelites be trampled and devoured by the Babylonians. He will, be, he will see them be captured and dragged away by hooks. So this imminent act of judgment on Israel isn't the only reason why Habakkuk is fearful. It's a reverent fear. He's heard God's judgment on Israel and Babylon. And this is most likely the work and report that he's talking about. He fears God's holy justice. Habakkuk knows God and what God will do, or what God has decreed will he will do. He offers up two pleas. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. Let your will be done, Lord. Habakkuk trusts God to not only do what he says he's going to do, but he has faith that God will keep his promise and to keep those who believe and trust in him. Only such faith can pray this to God after hearing the judgments God has declared, even on his own nation. We can think of the Lord's prayer here. Habakkuk is hallowing God's name. He stands in fear and awe, and he's asking his will to be done. Not at the end of the years, but in the midst of the years. Do it now. Are we asking God to do what he's promised to do now? When we are praying the things that God has promised to do, it will take our eyes off ourselves and our situation and instead upwards on eternal matters. Are we praying that he would give us spirit to do kingdom work? Are we praying that he would grow us in the fruits of the spirit or to be sent into the harvest or for his Christ to return? But Habakkuk has a second plea. In wrath, remember mercy. This cry for mercy isn't Habakkuk asking God to not do what he says he's going to do. We just saw that's not the case. But that while God is administering his justice, he would remember his mercifulness. It's a plea for God to act the way he has in the past and according to his character. God had continually shown Israel mercy time and time again, and so Habakkuk pleased to God that he would temper his wrath with mercy. This plea for mercy could also have the faithful in mind that God would show mercy especially to those in the midst of exile and persecution. Today we can ask God for the same thing. The word of God has expressed that there will be trials and suffering for those who choose to follow Jesus and not the world. We will experience rejection, persecution, suffering, and even death. And Habakkuk's plea shows us that we can pray for God's will to be done and, for, and to pray for mercy in the midst of it, knowing that we can't handle what will come our way without it. <clears throat> we can ask for mercy knowing that God doesn't desire to hold, withhold it from us. In the Gospels, we see the blind, the lame, the demon-possessed, and those who are physically unwell ask for mercy, and each time we see Jesus moved with compassion and move towards them and to extend mercy. This is who we plead to mercy for when life looks dark and bleak. When we think it's too much to bear on our own, we pray for mercy to the one who is merciful and moves towards people with compassion. A view of God, this is a view of God who sustains you through a hard season and not necessarily removes you from your hard circumstance. Habakkuk may have never seen the end of the captivity, but he clings to a God who can provide mercy in the midst of it. The second part of our text is from verse 3 to 7. And here we see Habakkuk remembering what God has done in the past. And so he meditates on God's power. It says, God came from Teman, from Mount Paran. 
As you work through your study books, you would have read that these places allude to the wilderness and the, and, sorry, would have allude to Egypt and the wilderness. Mount Paran could have also been another term for Mount Sinai. Either way, this brings Habakkuk and the reader to the time of slavery and, and the Exodus. The prophet puts Selah next to this half of the verse. We don't know what this means, but we can assume it's a musical term. And I once heard a preacher say that when we see the term Selah, it's good to ponder what the word has said. So let's do that. Let's think about the Israelites during the time of Egypt. So Israel were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. They were put to hard labor by Pharaoh and God raised up Moses as an ambassador. God told Moses to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. It took 10 plagues to have Pharaoh to reluctantly let the Israelites go. So the Israelites fled and they got to the Red Sea and saw Pharaoh's chariots coming behind them. God in his strength and power split the sea and the Israelites walked across on dry land while the Egyptians who followed were submerged. God then met Moses and the Israelites at Mount Sinai with the mountain quaking and a trumpet blast. God spoke to Moses and gave him the Ten Commandments and instructions on how to build the tabernacle, a place for God to dwell. In the wilderness, God went before them by cloud by day and by a pillar of fire at night. The rest of our text will give allusions to this time in Egypt and the wilderness, but this is, beginning, this is the beginning of God's power we have to have in our minds. Verse 3 goes on to talk about how God's glory is seen in the heavens, and we'll see it move down near light towards eye level. God's splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of his praise. This is an echo of what God said in chapter 2, verse 14. God's glory will be seen by all people, so it won't be missed. God didn't just stay in Teman and Mount Paran. He came from there to the aid of the Israelites, and all the nations saw his glory. Habakkuk goes into detail to what this glory looked like. It was bright like the sun, like lightning bolts. This is the best humanly way possible to describe God's glory. It's so radiant like the sun that it can't even be looked at. In the book of Exodus, chapter 34, verse 22, the CSB reads, I will put you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. This was when Moses wanted to see God's face, but God simply said, no, you can't. You can't handle my glory, but I will show you my back. And so God veils him until he walks by and his back is exposed. God veiled his complete glory to, be, to Moses. And similarly, we can see in the book of Exodus that Moses, when he went up the mountain to speak with God, his face would shine and he had to put a veil over his face. God's power and glory is further revealed by an illustration of God walking. And where he goes before him is pestilence and behind him is plagues. This is one of the ways that God can execute judgment. We merely think of the 10 plagues. God sent a plague to show Pharaoh who he is, the one true God. Pharaoh bequeaths and says he'll do what God wants him to do. God revokes the plague, but Pharaoh changes his mind and does not do what God wants him to do. And so these set of events repeat eight more times till finally Pharaoh listens and obeys. The prophet shows God's power in him by merely walking and plagues and pestilence come out from him. But once it's out there, it's not like, uh-oh, how do we contain this? No, God is in control of the plagues, that he can even remove them completely. And if we recall in the 10 plagues, the plagues didn't touch the Israelites or their livestock. This is God's power over plagues and pestilence. And not just that, but also over the things that might seem strong and eternal. 
There's nothing strong enough that is man-made that can move our earth out of its orbit, and nothing can cause huge mountains to lay flat to the earth. But the prophet shows us God can simply shake the earth and cause these things to happen. And it stands in contrast to God's ways. What may seem everlasting actually isn't when compared to God. The earth and the mountains have been around from the start of creation, but God was before creation. He is the creator, and so he is eternal. We can think again of Mount Sinai when the people of Israel gathered before it and the Lord descended upon it. The scriptures say the whole mountain trembled greatly. This is the power and strength of our God. The prophet ends our section telling us of the nations Cushion and Midian and their response. They trembled. They were in affliction. Other translations say that they were in distress. The nations respond with fear. I'd like to read Rahab's response to the Israelite spies when she came across them. She's not a Midianite or a Cushionite, but she is of a different nation. Listen to how she describes herself and the people of Jericho in light of the Exodus. I know that Yahweh has given you the land, and the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard from Yahweh, sorry, so we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and when you did and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For Yahweh your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. When God reveals his power and his glory, the nations tremble, and rightly so. So why should we care about this? Why should the Israelites sing a remembrance of God's power and glory in the Exodus? So I'm going to answer the latter first. We have to remember that the Israelites are on the brink of the Babylonian captivity. They were once again going to be enslaved to masters who will be harsh and evil against them. To sing and remember God's power and strength that once freed their ancestors from captivity in Egypt can give hope to the faithful who are in captivity in Babylon. God is stronger and more powerful than the Babylonians, who seem strong as mountains. But God's glory and strength aren't the only reasons why the Israelites were freed from the chains of, Egyptians, of the Egyptians. The book of Exodus is a pivotal point in Israel's history. This is when God reveals his covenant name to Israel, Yahweh. God displays his power and glory not out of jealousy of Pharaoh to show him who's really stronger or who's in control, no, he reveals his glory and strength because of his faithfulness to Israel and his steadfast love for them. Verse 3 says, God came from Mount Paran. It's like saying God came from the wilderness, went to Egypt, and then brought them back by showing them their, his glory and his strength. He revealed himself to them, though it was veiled, but the mountains still shook and the nations trembled. He did all this to bring them back into the promised land, to dwell with them so that he could be their God and they could be his people. And he did all this through his mercy. The Israelites did nothing to get themselves out of slavery, and there will be nothing they can do again except to have faith in the God who redeemed them out of his own steadfast love and mercy towards them. God is faithful, and he's not going to give up on the Israelites. He is their redeemer. Habakkuk and the faithful Israelites needed to remember what God has done in all his power, his glory, his love, and faithfulness in order to live by faith. 
However, that didn't necessarily mean God was going to remove them from their hard situation right away. But he would sustain them while they waited and kept their eyes fixed on God, who has done and who it and who he is. We do know that God does eventually bring them back into their land during the king of King Cyrus, during the reign of King Cyrus, the king of Persia. Seventy years after the Babylonians captured the Israelites, and the Babylonians were defeated and brought low. God's promises came to pass, and the faithful entered back into the land through a faithful God. So what does this have to do with us? In the day-to-day, when we're working or home with our kids, or when there's a daily struggle, a sickness, or when our marriages are hard or in our loneliness, why should we care or think on God's glory and power? The greatest moment in history where God's complete wrath and mercy was displayed was on the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus bore the wrath of sinners, though he was sinless. Wrath and mercy collide. But he was vindicated, raised to life on the third day, God's glory and power seen in the resurrection. And so all who believe in him will live for all eternity, praising God and glorifying him for his mercy towards sinners who couldn't free themselves from the slavery of sin. And so Jesus, the one who made a way for us to the Father, tells us to remember what he has done. How God displays full glory and power through the redemption on the cross. And so Easter is right around the corner. We celebrate this once a year. And we also do this as a church once a month when we take the Lord's Supper. But it's important to remember God in our own personal daily prayers. Um, So we went through the book of 1 Peter not too long ago, and we saw that we are exiles. This world is not our true home. We are saved from sin, but it's still a daily fight. When we are at work or home with our kids or struggling or um, whatever it may be, we need to keep our eyes fixed on God's glory and power revealed through Jesus. Like Habakkuk and the other faithful Israelites, we are still waiting for God's full redemption to come. We are to wait in faith on the one who is faithful and merciful and who is full of glory and power, and who is our Redeemer. He will come again soon. And so remembering what God has done will sustain us in the day-to-day when life is hard. We can remember what God has done through the scriptures, and we can even remember the small victories that we have in our own life. Remembering what God has done will sustain us. It will help us to live by faith and not by sight. So let's pray and remember God, we thank you for what you have done in the Exodus and how by your strength and your power and your glory and your mercy and your steadfast love that you brought people back out to you. We pray that you would help us to wait on you and to remember what you have done as we wait to be redeemed finally into into your presence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't want to be there.